Hey readers, I'm Ann Vogel, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 270. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, it is time for our quarterly Patreon live stream. Next week, our producer, Brenna, and I are hosting a virtual chat in our Patreon community. We'll hang out, answer your questions, and of course, share a bunch of book recommendations. These have been so fun in the past. I can't wait to do it again soon. In addition to these quarterly live stream events, Patreon members receive weekly bonus episodes, access to exclusive events like our summer reading guide unboxing, and a peek behind the scenes at our creative process. They even help in that creative process, shaping our upcoming content, titling episodes, and more. In our member community, a good bookish time is had by all. Join us for our next live stream on Tuesday, February 16th at 1 p.m. If you can't make it live, we'll record the event just like we always do, so members can watch it at any time. To join that community, go to patreon.com slash what should I read next. We can't wait to talk books with you on the 16th and all month long. Today, I'm talking with graphic memoirist and comic creator Lucy Nicely. We chat about her overflowing bookshelves, the pleasures and pitfalls of the creative process, what makes the perfect pandemic stress read, and how to cope with your kids' evolving reading tastes. Lucy is looking for distraction in her reading life right now and needs some low-stress books to read before bed. I have plenty of recommendations to suit her taste and fill your to-be-read lists. The audio for this episode comes from a live event that we hosted recently in the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club. We read Lucy's graphic food memoir, Relish, as a bonus book club pick last month, and this What Should I Read Next style event was an extra sprinkle of bookish joy for our book club members. We've never talked about graphic memoirs and comics in depth on the podcast before, so we recorded this special event to share with all of you too. I can't wait for you to hear Lucy's enthusiasm for comics, graphic novels, and what those terms even mean. Readers, let's get to it. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, I'm so excited to talk books and graphic everything with you today. Oh, yes. Not to embarrass you, but you are a critically acclaimed and award-winning comic creator. You specialize in personal, confessional, graphic novels, and travelogues. And it's because of that work that we are chatting today. We read Relish together here in Book Club. That's your graphic memoir about coming of age in the kitchen, uh, surrounded by people who love good food and love you. When we read a book together here, we often get to talk to the author about their work, the stories behind their work, and about their reading life. It adds so many layers and so much joy to the reading experience. Thank you for joining us today to do exactly that and for being game to do it in this format, a live podcast recording on the internet with an audience. (laughs) Now, I would love to hear a little bit about how you got started. Like, there's real magic in combining the drawing with the text. What is it about your stories that makes them really sing in this format? For me, graphic novels are something that come really naturally in terms of storytelling. When I started out telling stories, I automatically started drawing them. We all start as kids reading picture books. Those are comics. And you could trace it back as early as cave paintings, like uh, sequential narrative is something that comes really naturally to human beings. And at a certain point, we're sort of taught that the pictures should fall away to become serious reading. But for some of us, that doesn't really happen. And we start to wonder, well, why can't adult books be illustrated? Why can't I continue to have this dual experience of taking in the 
pictures while taking into the narrative. And for me, it's always been this really natural progression. It helps also that um, my mother is an artist and my father is a literary professor. So the two uh, passions kind of combined in me mm -hmm. and I was able to do both without sacrificing either. Mm -hmm. Well, we really enjoy getting a glimpse of both your parents in Relish. Would you tell us about that book in your own words? And please, use a better word than graphic memoir, because I've heard that you don't feel like that term is quite accurate for that work. Um, I guess not. I don't know. Comics is fine. Like the problem with all of the terminology with this is that people have weighted them with such connotations. The idea of using things like um, sequential narratives uh, make it sound all grown up and everything, but there's nothing wrong with comics. There's no reason why comics shouldn't be seen as an art form, seen as a literary form. So I tend to just use comics to describe my work and the work of other graphic novelists. But it's tough when I'm like, oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a comic artist. And people are like, oh, do you draw for Marvel? <laughs> no, I'm also a comic author. And they're like, well, is it funny? And I'm like, not always. <laughs> uh, the terminology is all very convoluted, but, uh, but comics is fine. Relish was um, my second published book. Uh, I made it when I was still fairly young and it collects a series of stories about my experiences growing up with a mother who's a chef and her chef friends and sort of coming of age in restaurant kitchens and catering kitchens. For me, comics is a wonderful way to combine two sensory experiences of reading. You're experiencing the story and experiencing the visual narratives. Mm -hmm. And when you combine that with sense memories of food, smells, tastes, it adds yet another layer of this. So I kind of wanted to combine all that in a big soup of a book. <laughs> I had recently read Images a la Carte by Klaus Oldenburg. So he and his partner, Kuzi Van Bergen, really loved to dine out together. And later in her life, Kuzi developed all these food sensitivities and allergies, and they could no longer enjoy these wonderful meals that they used to share. Klaus started to draw and paint the meals that they really loved so that she could enjoy them through what she called gastronomy of the eye. And I thought that was so cool, this idea that you could experience a sensory reaction to something by looking at it or hearing about it. And I've always really responded to food in literature. So I, I think that comics about food make so much sense. Gastronomy of the eye. Tell me about responding to food in literature. I'm a big <laughs> compulsive cook. I'm not like, like my mother is very like, okay, meal, like plan out the whole meal from start to finish. And, and, and I'm like, I got to eat a bread right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I have always been the kind of person that reads about a meal in a book and then I have to eat it immediately. So that's one of these things that I've always really liked about reading, having this kind of sensory reaction to it. Mm -hmm. My favorite book series while I was growing up and also now is this book series, the Assassin's Book series by Robin Hobb. It's like this high fantasy dragons and talking animals kind of thing. It's great. But all the food that they describe in it is so good. It's all just like, you know, a warm, hearty stew with a piece of cheese on homemade bread. It's all kind of like rust castle food. That's the earliest I can remember kind of having this immediate reaction to reading about a meal and being like, yes, I want to eat that immediately. And then of course I got into kind of like Ernest Hemingway later on and opened up whole new avenues of like, I've never had an oyster fresh from the ocean before I have to have that. <laughs> I was going to say, what does Ernest Hemingway eat? I don't know that I could tell you. 
I've read all those books. See, I can remember what you ate in Relish. I mean, the food was very forward in it, but also there were visuals. So even though I wasn't necessarily smelling it in my kitchen, I could do it in my mind and I could see it with my eyes. And I really loved the, was it shiitake mushrooms that I made and the huevos rancheros? Oh, they're so good. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So Hemingway to fantasy novels with dragons. Mm -hmm. The food speaks to you. It does. I love that. Well, you talked about writing about food and about your mom and dad. And something that generated a lot of conversation in our group was that you write almost exclusively about your life in relation to family, which is one reason I imagine that um, moms love you, as you were saying before we got started, because we connect to that. But, you know, a reason that we can really connect to you and to real life and get thinking about our own. But we did wonder, is it tricky? Like relish something new and kid gloves. They're all stories about shifting relationships with crucial people in our lives during different and often difficult phases. I'd argue that most books are kind of about shifting relationships and your your relationship to your parents in some way. But yeah, it has been a little tricky. The the nice part is that uh, when I got married, he knew what he was getting into. Like my parents, they didn't sign up for this, but I'm very close with both my parents. I'm an only child. I try to be very respectful when writing about the people in my life. And there's a reason why I'm kind of pivoting a little bit more towards fiction now in my work, because now I have a four-year-old son and he also didn't ask for this. So as funny as he is, and he's the funniest person on earth, and I really want to exploit that, I have to kind of rein that in a little bit, which is why now I focus a lot on exploiting my cat more (laughs) to try and like (laughs) re-divert that energy, particularly now where I'm like, I'm trapped in this house there's nothing to inspire me that isn't in this house. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to do something funny right now. I'm put in mind of David Sedaris. I just re-listened to most of his new collection, The Best of Me, which might be exclusively old stuff. But he says, like, my family didn't sign up for this. So I bought them a beach house and we all go to it together. <laughs> That's a good Not suggesting you should buy like a lakefront home for your family. But it worked for David Sedaris. I'll think about that. <laughs> Lucy, we're also talking in early 2021. We still have a pandemic. A bunch of your books are travelogues. And I imagine that there's some kind of wanderlust fueling that. Is literature of your own creation or other people's helping you cope right now? Probably. Frankly, I like the kind of books right now that are all very homey, very, you know, Little House Mm -hmm. on the Prairie kind of style because they're not about travel and They're not just taunting me with what I cannot have. I am re-listening to the entire Outlander book series. And the one that uh, I'm working on right now, they're in uh, North Carolina and they're digging kilns and making butter and raising hogs and stuff. And I'm like, yes, this is my jam. This is what I need right now. I need to know that like, there's nothing outside the farm. (laughs) So for travelogues, I think that they are out, should be outlawed. You know, that's funny. I don't remember them churning butter in Outlander, but that might jump out to me if I picked it up right now. There's like a dirty scene with churning butter. (laughs) I don't remember. But I know we have some members here today who are huge romance fans who like bookmark the steamy scenes and read them over and over again. I won't name any names, but they're going to go look up that butter scene right now. So you just mentioned that you're transitioning into fiction That's so interesting. When Stepping Stones came out last May, May 2020, I wondered what the impetus was for stepping into fiction. Tell me more about experimenting with that genre. I've always wanted to. I've always felt more challenged by fiction 
comes more naturally, as I said, to kind of tell mm -hmm. true stories in this way, because I like the idea of having <laughs> having total control. I mean, <laughs> the truth of the matter is that most cartoonists have a great deal of control over the way that the story is told and digested by the audience, because we're not just describing something, we're actually drawing the way that we remember it looking. So with true stories, it's this really great way to be like, no, this is my perspective. Not only are you reading about it, you're seeing through my eyes the way that I remember it. So that's always been like, oh yes, perfect. I know exactly what to draw. I know exactly how to tell the story. And with fiction, it's a lot more creatively taxing mm -hmm. to sort of come up with like, hey, like this is from her perspective, but I have to draw it so that the audience is seeing it. And it partly came out of my desire to just mm -hmm. expand my work and kind of develop. But uh, it also came out of my desire to get a little distance, um, not just because I became a mother and you know, all the ridiculous vulnerability that comes along with that, but because of the way people are on the internet <laughs> too, the way that people uh, now can have this instantaneous connection to the authors in their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, I needed to create work that was a little bit separate from myself in order to kind of move with the times. That is so interesting. Do you feel like that has changed in the little over 10 years since you published your first book, that connection between re the relationship, the nature of the relationship between authors and the readers? Hugely different. I think it's even changed just over the last year. Frankly, people are spending a lot more time in their homes and they're having a lot stronger connections mm -hmm. to the people that they read and the people that they follow mm -hmm. because we don't have these in-person connections that we had in the past. And now we have to balance the connections that we feel with these people with the fact that we don't actually know them in real life. And uh, frankly, one of the things that I find really interesting is that I have this large range of age in my readership, you know, middle grade at this point, and then I have elderly people and it's really interesting to me. But when you're young and you have this passionate connection to something, it can really mess you up to have the ability to then reach out and be like, excuse me, but you made this thing that I have a lot of connections and feelings about. I think that when you're an adult, you can kind of parse out the difference in ownership. But when you're younger, you can't. And the internet has warped that so much that I want kids to be able to connect with my work and connect with the characters that they see without feeling like they need to connect with a real human being because it really can mess a kid up. It can, it can mess up everything for someone to put a real human being on this pedestal in such a way. We already have so many incidents of that and um, how terrifying it is when real people don't measure up. Part of it is just wanting to create that space for myself, but also to create that space for my readers. That's so interesting. And I appreciate you talking about that. Something that's been really eye-opening to me is to realize that there are so many reasons to make the work in front of us, like really wonderful work in front of us. And something that's really like blown me back, but made perfect sense in hindsight is to find out like an author friend I really admire. I said, oh, like you signed a three book contract. You're writing a series. Like why? You know, what? what's changed now? You always said you wanted to do one book at a time. And she said, oh, um, we got medical bills coming down the pike and I want to know where my money's coming from, which which is completely valid and like a wonderful reason to decide to, do. I mean, that's how people make decisions about work. But just thinking about the life you want and the creative career you want and the relationship you want to those readers. People weren't thinking about this 50 years ago. I mean, they were definitely thinking about where their money's coming from, but not a about Instagram relationships. 
It's true. And, you know, you have to think about the trade-off. It's like, okay, I, I wish I could be Emily Dickinson, just like writing poems and hiding them under my bed and never having to publicize myself ever. But that's not the reality of being an author these days. You have to have a presence online. You have to engage with your readers. You have to have spiels <laughs> that you rattle off. And it's exhausting. It takes energy away from the work. And uh, it's something that doesn't come naturally to a lot of authors who are just like, prefer prefer to be Emily Dickinson hiding their poems under yeah. their beds. Yeah, You know, it's enough vulnerability to publish your work, let alone then to sort of stand next to it and be like, I made this. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you why it's amazing. And you should plunk down your money for it right now. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, so it's something that I think a lot of authors are having to think about more these days, much more now that we have to create this pers- this public persona as well as creating the personas of all our characters. All right, Lucy, I've got good news for you. On this show, we don't just ask you questions to like tip you into your talking points. We want to hear about what you'd love to read and why. Okay. So as we're talking, we can see a whole, what, hundreds of graphic novels and memoirs and other comics behind you. That might feel like work, but here's my question. How do you see reading, no matter what you're reading, whether you're reading Hemingway or Emily Dickinson or Mariko Tamaki, like, how do you see reading is fitting into this work? And what is your reading life like these days? Awesome. (laughs) It's an escape. Thank God for books right now. I'm so grateful. Thank God for... um, like digital uh, library downloads. I've been uh, very, very lucky in my career as well to have sort of come up at the same time as a lot of really amazing, talented comic authors. So uh, people like Mariko Tamaki, I've known for more than a decade and we're friends and we have, you know, when we're in the same city together, we hang out and it's just so amazing and fulfilling to be able to read their work and also be obsessed with it and be like, I know this person and I'm obsessed with this work. It's so cool. So a lot of my work is keeping up with my colleagues, just trying to read everything that they put out. The sort of wave that comes after that of crushing despair that I'm never going to make anything as good as that. Oh, I hate that that's part of the process. You know, it's like the high of, oh my God, this is amazing. Oh my God, how am I ever going to make anything as good? And then like, I'm glad that my friend has success moving on. <laughs> at this point, I mean, you you are seasoned at this point. Is it helpful to know like... This is part of the process. I'm going to be I, like, I won't be in the trough forever. I'll be on the come up. This is the most works. important thing, I think, in any profession, any in, in any endeavor, in your relationships, in your life, to sort of be able to watch the patterns and be like, OK, I'm having a bad week at work this week. Like, I'm not getting anything done. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> and then to like look around you and go, oh, hmm, uh, the global pandemic. I think there's uh, like other things happening that are affecting me. But to be able to know that you're going to come back around from it. And it's tough because there's a lot of voices in your head already. For example, uh, my mom and I were talking on the phone the other day and she was like, I'm glad to see that you're back to making comics. And I was like, when did I stop? When did I stop? I've been busting my ass making comics. When did I stop making comics? And she's like, oh, you had like a dry spell there for a little bit. And I was like, I didn't post for like a week. <laughs> and this is the comics I'm making in addition to my like nine to five making pages for my book job. So, okay, well, hmm. it's it's just so important to know that you're going to have your off times and your on times and 
I, I spent so much of my early career absolutely tortured with the success of others, with feeling inadequate or or feeling that someone got you know the credit that they did not deserve, which is such a waste of energy. It's such a waste of time. And it's also so human nature. It is so human nature. Yeah. It's so, but like, I promise you, if you are being tortured by that, you got to like, eventually it's going to be easier to sort of recognize that you're doing that and be like, it's actually okay and moving on. So for me, it's gotten so much easier to be able to be like, oh, I'm so happy for them. This is so amazing. This work is awesome. I'm going to tell everybody to buy this book instead of being like, why am I not the one getting this deserved praise? So it's awesome just sort of getting to a point where I can read a comic and not have it go inside me and poison me to death. Mm -hmm. And yet, based on your favorites, ooh, I have to tell you, I was reading an interview you did online and the question was, tell us five of your favorite books. And you shared nine. And I thought, oh, <laughs> that's relatable. I'm sure they're all different. And every, every time someone has asked me, what's your five favorite books? I'm like, here's five that I've never mentioned before. I mean, on the show, we're about to talk about your favorite books, but they're not like your top three of all time. There are three of your favorites, of which there could be legions. Because, you know, we're readers and that's how it goes. There's all kinds of books to love. But you're not just reading comics. What are some of the other genres that you really gravitate towards and find escape and pleasure in? Uh, fantasy, romantic fiction stuff. Mm -hmm. Like out the Outlander books have really rescued me over the past couple of years. <laughs> They've helped me a great deal in during the pandemic because there's so much horrible trauma that happens to the characters and mm. then they just sort of get on with their lives and, and continue <laughs> to exist. Next scene, let's go. Right, yeah, yeah. like, okay, all right. Just, I would just walk into the ocean if that happened to me, but all right, great. <laughs> it's a hard way to carry on a series though. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. There's a reason why we're like waiting on the next <laughs> for... <laughs> But this library you see behind me is just comics. So our other departments are scattered throughout our house. And uh, I, as I said, have a four-year-old and I'm a voracious picture book reader. Mm -hmm. he, he's just started to read in the last year and he's uh, getting into chapter books. So I've like finagled him into reading uh, The Phantom Tollbooth and Abel's Island, these books that I loved when I was a kid. So I do spend a fair amount of time reading those things, but then uh, he'll go to the library and pick out like Pokemon comics. And I'm like, all right, it's, it's it takes more energy to read a comic. It does. It just does. You're, you're like taking in the story and the pictures and you have to parse that language together. It's a lot. And then to expend that energy on things like the various Pokemons and their weight. Like, did you know that they all have a weight? All of the Pokemon have a weight. And uh, my son loves it and he's obsessed. And I have to just be like, okay, wake up. <laughs> We're reading the Pokemon. <laughs> so I do spend a lot of time reading children's literature. Mm -hmm. uh, last year I read this, uh, the History of Color, the Cassia St. Clair book, which mm -hmm. I thought was super cool. And it's such a good read for, um, I think I read it right around the time when the pandemic was just kicking off because mm -hmm. it was this perfect read where I could pick up the book, read about mauve, and then put it down and be like, mauve, that was great. I'm going to sleep now. Like you didn't get all wrapped up into it and uh, not be able to put it down. So that one's a really favorite of mine that I've come back to a few times in times of stress and anxiety. Okay. I can't wait to hear more about what you love and get more into the details. Lucy, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three of the many books you love. 
<laughs> one book you don't and what you've been reading lately. And we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Lucy, tell me about the first book you love. The Secret Lives of Color, uh, Cassie Sinclair. It is a collection of colors and pigments. So each chapter is about a page or two long and shows you the picture of the color and then talks about the origin of the pigment, where it comes from, when people started to use it, how they were using it. So they'll talk about indigo and they'll be like, all right, here's how indigo is grown. And then here's how it's harvested. And here's when people began to use it. You know, painters that are famous for using it in their work. Such a chill read. It's so nice and beautiful and allows you to kind of have this mind wipe where all of a sudden all you can think about is the color indigo and you're like yes indigo <laughs> amazing and you're thinking about like people in ancient times grinding up the pigment and using it to dye their clothes it's so cool and absolutely a wonderful like stress read <laughs> stress read that sounds like the book you were just talking about how you can read it before bed and get absorbed in the story and then set it on your nightstand because you don't need to know what that character is going to do next. Exactly. Because that, yeah, it's not going anywhere. The advantage of having a discussion like this, not in person, is that I could just hear everybody like rushing to Google so they could see the pages. Okay, that was The Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair. Lucy, what did you choose for your next favorite? Uh, I believe it was Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. One of her older books, it came out, I think I was in high school when it came out. There have subsequently been a number of sequels to this book. So if you get into it now, you have a lot to go, which I always really love to hear. Mm. Everybody crows from the rooftops about Handmaid's Tale, which is amazing. And I read The Testaments last year, uh, and I really loved it. I I'm basically obsessed with Margaret Atwood. She's <laughs> a goddess. Oryx and Crake was this revelation for me because I read it and I was able to connect it so much to what was happening in the news and in politics at the time. And that was like a real shift for me because I had read Handmaid's Tale and been like, yeah, this, yeah, I, I can see this happening kind of thing. But or, with Oregon Craig, it's much more about genetic engineering and engineering of food and stuff. So it's, it's stuff I'm already interested. In. I'm really interested in the way that we uh, eat and the way that we, the scientific partnership between food and genetics. So she talks a great deal about that. And then it's also a little bit about the internet ruining everything <laughs> and um, toxic masculinity ruining everything. And it's just, it's just such a mind blowing book and it's fabulous and scary and informs so much of my life. And now I'll see like a commercial for, uh, you know, like uh, lab grown meat, lab grown meat is something she talks about a lot. And in the book, she calls it chicky knobs. <laughs> They're like <laughs> knobs that grow on a stalk. Of, so it's lab grown meat. And, I, and now I'm always like, yes, chicky knobs. Yes. It's an amazing book. And I love it. And I love everything that she does. I'm currently reading her poetry book, Dearly, just came out. And it's tragic and beautiful and wonderful. So anyway, Margaret Atwood is a queen and a goddess. What's what's that one? Okay, so this is Solutions and Other Problems. This is the new Ali Brosh book. Okay, and that's your third favorite. I love that you could reach over and grab it from yourself. I wish I had all of my books surrounding me at all times, but my entire office would be that, so. <laughs> this is amazing. Her first book, Hyperbole and a Half, came out like six years ago, really long time. And the question as to why that happened is answered in this book, and it's, Remarkable. I thought this book was so funny. I laughed until I cried. I thought the first book was great. I thought the second book was more amazing in this way that her storytelling has really deepened. 
her art style remains this really rudimentary thing where it's it's just it's so uh unsophisticated in this really wonderful effective way it's very essential comics thing where it's like it's communicating exactly what you want it to communicate without being overly fussy or like showy or look at me it's so good and um it's really sad in various parts of this book it's like it, it hits you like a ton of bricks that uh you can go from screaming with laughter to like pit of your stomach oh, horror <laughs> in a way that uh is a real roller coaster ride as they say so um i thought this was a really amazing read and highly recommend it now lucy perhaps we've already covered this but tell me about a book that's not right for you my son is only four and has not yet developed a discerning literature taste. <laughs> Why not? What's wrong? <laughs> He's getting there. But it's funny because I'll bring these books back that are all by like Carson Ellis. And I'm like, look at this beautiful, so beautifully drawn. And it's about like the the solstice isn't it wonderful and he's like yeah i'm gonna read that book about dump truck (laughs) i struggle with like both the comic artist part of me and the author part of me uh when i'm reading to him because so many of these picture books either are like wonderfully written and terribly drawn or (laughs) wonderfully drawn and about a dump truck it's like i can't get invested in this dump dump truck i really can't It just doesn't like tug at your heart the way you want it to. But fortunately, we're living in a absolutely golden age of children's literature. And I'm lucky enough to have a dad. So my son's grandpa is a a literature professor. And he also worked at a bookstore for a huge portion of his life. And he reads all of the like recommended children's literature things and then just sends them to us, which is awesome. And we also live like a block away from this amazing indie bookstore for children. And we live two blocks away from the library. So we just constantly have an influx and it's great. But uh, I will say I could do without the Pokemon comics and the (laughs) Billy the Dump Truck. When he comes on the show, he can choose that as his favorite. There are books for every reader. It is okay. (laughs) Although sometimes those readers need to read the books together. You know, the Phantom Tollbooth, that gives me hope for you. (laughs) Lucy, what are you reading right now? I'm reading Margaret Atwood's new book of poetry, Dearly. It is all work that she wrote in the year that her partner of like 45 years passed away. It's a lot about mortality and a lot about seizing the day and loss. And it absolutely crushes me with every poem. I have to like read a poem and then lie down for six hours. (laughs) It's very good, but it's kind of an exhausting read, but excellent at the same time. And then I'm simultaneously re-listening to the Outlander book series. I'm working on the the inks, as it's called, the ink staging of my next graphic novel. So it's a little bit mindless and just listening to audiobooks is how I usually get through it. And it helps that there are hundreds of thousands of pages of Outlander (laughs) (laughs) books. So I just like won't run out for a really long time and nothing is super surprising (laughs) because I've already read it. So I'm like, great. Okay. This is perfect. Lucy, what are you looking for in your reading life right now? Distraction. (laughs) from uh, world news and events. Uh, Not really interested in reading any like zombie apocalypse pandemic books. And I'm particularly fond of, you know, smut. (laughs) I I really loved uh, Red, White and Royal Blue. It's so good. (laughs) I loved The Kiss Quotient. Oh, I just got signed up. My birthday was last week and I got a romance novel book of the month club from the rip bodice so i'm really excited about that i'm i'm gonna tear through those it's gonna be awesome that sounds fun 
I find that between uh, parenthood and pandemic and <laughs> global politics stress, most of the time when I get to read and it's not for work is like right before bed. So I can't read anything where a child is endangered. Anyone gets hurt in any way <laughs> or yeah, any, any child, any like children going missing, anything like cannot happen. So I tend to find that romance novels are really chill and relaxing for that sort of thing. So between that and like, oh, I'm also reading a book about the history of Evanston because we just moved here. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm studying up on like, oh, the, the Barnum and Bailey family lived here and they had a house nearby where the floors were reinforced because they used to trot elephants through during parties. Oh gosh. I know. <laughs> that sounds like fascinating reading. It's really cool. I got it from the library. It's a hundred okay. years old. This book is like falling apart. So I always have like the things that I like, okay, I need kind of a boring read. Okay. I need smut. I need uh, background stuff while I work, or I need to keep up with my friends who are making graphic novels. There's like a wide array of things going at any time. <laughs> As there should be. So the books you love, The Secret Lives of Color by Kasia St. Clair, Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood, The Goddess, the book itself being a revelation. I've never read it. And Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. And I mean, you know, you want to choose your own books not have your four-year-old choose them for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's legit. All right, Lucy, I got ideas for you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you like romance. You like historical romance. I have read on the interwebs. You like a sassy heroine. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a romance novelist named Mia Vinci. She has a series. It's called the Long Hope Abbey series. And I really want you to start with book three, which you can totally do. It's called A Wicked Kind of Husband. It's just so much fun. I mean, like the snappy banter between the two main characters who of course hate each other is just so fun the plot revolves around a marriage of convenience the bride has seen her husband only once that was the plan they don't want to know each other or live with each other like that would not be the point are you kidding me they are both perfectly pleased with this arrangement separate lives separate towns when they meet in london like everybody in their circle of acquaintances cracks up because they all recognize that these people are married but the people married to each other don't recognize each other and it's kind of embarrassing and they kind of have to like fudge their way through the situation so it's not so horribly awkward but they're forced to get to know each other and it's a historical romance novel i mean you know how the plot's gonna go but not exactly how it's going to go. So it can be comforting and surprising, but still you ultimately know like this is going to end the way romance novels end, which is happily. For romance readers who want to know, there are some definite open door moments here. You know, get your bookmarks ready or move on to something else accordingly. That was A Wicked Kind of Husband by Mia Vinci. Okay, next... This would be right at home on an eclectic shelf. You mentioned that we're living in a golden era of children's literature. The next book I have in mind for you is the Margaret Wise Brown bio by Amy Gary. It's called In the Great Green Room, The Brilliant and Bold Life of Margaret Wise Brown. And this one is pretty, I think it just came out last year. And this is a biography of the author of Goodnight Moon, who I just assumed, I mean, she wrote this classic children's book that sold 48 bazillion copies and has all kinds of spinoffs like um, Goodnight Mr. Darcy, which I love that you all feel like I need to know any kind of Jane Austen spinoff children's book. Um, my inbox is filled immediately, but you know, it's an, it's an icon. But the woman behind it wasn't like just a this staid little boring librarian. Not that librarians are boring, but I definitely got an image of the kind of woman who would write this kind of book. And um, it's all wrong. She was fascinating. She really pushed the boundaries of what was 
acceptable with my air quotes by society. She was fiery and independent. She built this whole life that didn't adhere to the societal norms of the day. She had like strong, passionate relationships with men and with women. She lived life in an artistic, nurturing, and supportive community that included a bunch of artists, some connections that turned out to be quite lucrative because she came on the scene right after World War II when the market for children's literature just exploded. And she invented many of the elements we take for granted in those children's books that you love to read with your kid that we're still reading now, like she came up with them. And the author had access to these recently uncovered papers and unpublished books and diaries. And she also wrote poetry. And some of that poetry introduces each chapter of the book. I hope you're not going to sit down to read this book and read a snippet of poetry introducing the chapter and then need your smelling salts and to like collapse on the floor for six hours like you do with the Margaret Atwood poems. But since you do love poetry, that might be a fun connection. How does that sound? That sounds great. I've heard crazy things about her, so I'd love to read about her more. I mean, the kind of things that make for fascinating reading. Okay, finally, you talked about how you're craving farm life and churning butter and the little house on the prairie vibe and the outlander that has all those domestic elements. But I mean, you also love a good YA protagonist. Is this right? Correct. Nina LaCour has a new book out in 2020. It is contemporary paranormal fiction. It is called Watch Over Me. And it's a quiet, gentle, not so spooky ghost story about a child who's just aged out of the foster system and needs somewhere to go. So when she moves into this family's house, she's immediately drawn to the warmth and sense of family among the others who live at the farm there. But she slowly realizes the place is haunted by the past traumas of the young residents. And that brings her own past pain rising to the surface. But it sounds spookier than it is. It's not like a jump scare ghost story. It's a story about learning to accept love and also perhaps the ghost of your past self. And while some difficult things happen with the little boy, he is safe and sound. Bad things do not happen in the end. Hope and love triumph. I think it could be a lot of fun for you. That is Watch Over Me, Nina LaCour. Thank you. Lucy, we talked about A Wicked Kind of Husband by Mia Fincy. In the Great Green Room, The Brilliant and Bold Life of Margaret Wise Brown by Amy Gary, and Watch Over Me by Nina LaCour. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I will probably read the Nina LaCour book first. I am so glad that sounds good to you because I think that has your name on it. Different enough from all of my other <laughs> in-process readings. I can't wait to hear what you think, and I'm glad it'll be a nice addition to your mix. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Lucy today, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 270, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You'll also find information about the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club and our upcoming author chat with Ryan Stradle right there on that page. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. To support our show and get weekly bonus episodes, access to our upcoming live stream, and a peek behind the scenes, join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash what should I read next. And while we create these perks as a thank you to readers who financially support the show, we found out in our recent Patreon survey that the majority of readers sign up simply because they want to tangibly support what we're making here, and we are so grateful. Sign up to become a supporter at patreon.com slash what should I read next. Right now, we're experimenting with our all books all the time. What should I read next? Instagram account. Follow us there at what should I read next to see what we're up to. 
And if you don't get our weekly newsletter, go to what should I read next podcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What should I read next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound designed by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Roca said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>